Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. This is uh, Dennis Donahue, and I get the uh, pleasure of being the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology. And I'm joined by my uh, good friend, as always, Candace Wilson. Candace? Hi, Dennis. How are you today? Good, thank you. And, and you know, one of the things, uh, we got some feedback from one of our guests, and they said, could Candace tell us a little bit about herself? So I always get to say I'm the uh, director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology. You need to lay down a marker. People want to know about you. You know what? So I'm not just your your good friend. <laughs> you true. are more than my good friend. But, <laughs> but seemingly you have other roles and responsibilities. I do other things. That's true. That's true. Well, just as you're proud to be the innovation director, I am the regional director for the Western Business at the Farmers Business Network. So FBN um, has been developing an e-commerce platform for all grower inputs. So we call ourselves a late stage startup, but we're talking about a company who has grown significantly in the last eight years. We sell all crop protection products, seed. What else? Well, it's a fabulous I, I, place to be working. It's exciting. It's this amazing culture of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and people who've worked in ag their whole careers and stuff. So you are getting a fast and furious sort of environment. And when the business is growing really fast, then, you know, processes aren't keeping up with growth. So there's plenty of little hurdles throughout the day as well. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, we're going to keep, as we keep doing our episodes, we'll keep introducing you further to our audience. So, there you go. Okay. Anyway, I can do that. And now we get to introduce somebody else who's a great friend of Western Growers. In fact, he's on the board and uh, is known for, besides what we're going to hear about in terms of his business activities, he's a great host of uh, our annual Ag Sharks and noted for a uh, keen insight and a great sense of humor. So with all of that, let's uh, bring on uh, Stuart Wolf, who is the president and CEO of uh, Wolf Farming. And Stuart, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we were excited about this one. Like I said, alluding to your, you know, how personable you are and how much everyone enjoys your uh, appearance each year at the annual meeting. I thought Stuart's going to be a great guest. And uh, so we're excited to have you. And, and typically what we like to do and is just have our guests start with what you're currently doing and, and a little bit about your background in terms of how you got there. And then, uh, and then we'd like to know about wolf farming and uh, the nature of the operation. So anyway, I was born and raised in uh, Fresno. Actually, I was born up until the time I was about three and a half. I lived in a little town called Huron with my family. And then uh, we moved into Fresno, mom and dad and six kids. And anyway, my father worked for a guy named Russell Giffen, who was a pioneer out on the West Side and really made his mark. He started kind of with nothing and built a really a sizable, well-known operation known as Giffen Inc., and after about 35 years of doing that, and at age 57, in 1974, my mom and dad started Wolf Farming Company. Giffen had sold all the property and they decided to start up, which I'm still, I find it remarkable at age 57, right. you would go take your savings and put it into farmland in Western Fresno County. I don't know that I would do the same today, but uh, anyway, they did. And we're in a federal water district and the property was broken up and ownership was. So I ended up with 160 acres when I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I spent a lot of summers working out there. And I thought, 
I will never do this the rest of my life. Uh, I ended up going to a boarding school, went to Berkeley, ended up at Boston College, and I was graduating in 1986. There was a lot of activity with leverage buyouts and all this stuff. KKR just did the, the RJR Nabisco deal. Everybody in business school thought, we got to go to New York. That's where the action is. So I was kind of poking around thinking, I'm going to stay on the East Coast for a while. And on my graduation, my dad came out and really spoke to me about his kind of love and passion of farming. And I had this opportunity and he just thought it'd be a mistake not to come out and give it a go. And once I did, I, like all of my farming friends, just fell in love with it, you know, and I couldn't get it out of my blood. And so anyway, I took right to it. And one thing led to another. And out of six kids, my family asked me to kind of step up. So it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's elaborate on that. What's your fault? Talk about wolf farming and what you do and the, and the various products you're associated with. Well, so coming out of school, my father was very growth oriented and naturally being a, a young guy and I recently married and, you know, it's easy to get in trouble trying to grow too fast. And so I managed to do that on more than one occasion. So Wolf Farming Company, we farm about 30,000 acres, most of which we own. And then we've vertically integrated into a couple processing plants. We really like growing processing tomatoes. And so we built a tomato facility back in about 1990 in the middle of Fresno County, the most productive tomato growing region of the world. And then we built an almond processing plant. Actually, the year before that, got together with a partner, John Harris, and built a facility and you know, we had no idea that the almond thing would have the kind of run up that it did over the several decades. And so we've grown both those businesses and our farming operations. But Dennis and Candace, as you well know, when you're growing one of these farming businesses, it takes a lot of capital. You get kind of thinned out on your working capital. And all you have to have is kind of a downturn in a market here and there. And then it's your fault. <laughs> so <laughs> Today compared to what the farm looked like in 1986. Here we are, 2023 now. How has the farm evolved in terms of the crops that you're working on, some of the new technologies? You know, what are some of the strides that the farm has made over the last, how many years is that? 40? Well, let me back up and just say one thing my dad did, which I thought was really in retrospect, was just kind of genius. But, it, you know, he looked at the crops that were predominantly being grown out there, like in the mid seventies. And, you know, it was a lot of cotton, grain, melons, this kind of thing. And he thought, you know, I don't want to be beholden to like farm programs and support payments and all that. So he really started to focus on crops that were unique to California, like almonds, pistachios, where we had global competitive advantage. And so, you know, you can grow most anything here in California. He narrowed it down to a handful of items that turn out to be highly mechanized that are, again, we have global advantage. We enjoyed a better return per acre foot on those crops. Early on, my dad was figuring out which crops generate the best returns based on the limiting factor of water. By the time I showed up in about 86, the farm had grown to about 12,000 acres. And then when I came along, we started developing more almonds. We made that kind of a strategic, you know, we're going to increase that. We're going to get in the almond processing business. And then my dad, who always had an interest in like building a tomato facility. This is kind of crazy, but you know, the Apple Macintosh, the computer came out in 84 and I got one for college. So when I came back to the ranch, I actually had Microsoft MultiPlan, you know, before Excel. 
So I could run like all these forward looking projections and change the, you know, do sensitivity analysis and everything. So my timing and luck of this thing was just great. So because I was doing a lot of that, then I usually joined my father in talking to investors or the bank and spoke to, you know, the business and, you know, all these different, you know, what happens if tomato solids decrease or the price of tomatoes go up or whatever. I could speak to all that basis, the, my modeling with my computer. So, <laughs> but we, I had a really good long run with my dad. You know, and I can hear, uh, you know, the, for lack of a better word, the affection, uh, though I'm sure it's an accurate word you had, had for your dad. But, you know, with that Apple Macintosh, gosh, I think Candace, may, we may have found uh, Ground Zero, who was the first real ag tech guy. It might have been Stuart Wolf. Look at that. That's true, Stuart. <laughs> who, 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 I doubt knew? That. who knew? You're the guy. It's where it all started. You know, I, I have to tell you, I remember trying to convince my dad to get a fax machine. You know, and it was like 1200 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in his office and he says, well, I understand this faxing thing, I think, but don't the other people that you're faxing to have to have a fax machine? And I said, well, yeah. He says, well, do you know if they do? And I said, well, okay, I'll go back and I'll find out who has fax machines. <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good one. Every new technology that comes along like that. I remember when email was a thing and chat rooms were a thing. Then all of a sudden they become norm and everybody's like, okay, I'll get on board. There you go. How fast it moves. Well, we're going to talk to you a little bit about your thoughts about innovation and adoption. But before we move on, you know, before we got started recording, I was really intrigued. You know, you talk about your dad and really kind of trying to narrow down, you know, the crops are going to have the best return. But we were chatting about your involvement with, you know, the almond board. And did anyone really see this coming in terms of, you know, when you look at specialty crop acreage in California, I mean, almonds just outpaces everything, you know, almost on a five to one, six to one basis. Was that serendipitous or did anyone really see that coming? Well, you know, I think we thought we had a really good product, almonds, uh, from a nutritional standpoint. And quite frankly, again, from a competitive advantage standpoint, I mean, you know, today the industry represents, I don't know, something like 82% of global production. And so we thought we really had kind of something to run with. And what we were talking about before, a guy named Roger Wasson at the Almond Board convinced people that uh, what when almonds, the USDA and the food pyramid used to point to almonds as being loaded with fat and something to avoid. And Roger Wasson convinced, you know, consumers in the US, like eating nuts is really part of a good, healthy, like Mediterranean diet. It's good for you, full of antioxidants, blah, blah, blah. You should be eating more of those. And really helped drive from a nutritional standpoint, drove the demand for that crop. And, you know, it's funny you asked that question years ago when I was, the reason I, I kind of became chairman of the Almond Board, I attended a meeting and the board then had hired some professors at UC Davis to do a study, you know, over 10 years, like what could it grow to? And the study, evidently it said, you know, at the rate we're going and the growth, you know, we could be like a billion pound industry. And the number was so daunting that the board decided after they all read it, decided we should just put that like in the safe and not share it because people are going to freak out if they think we're going to a billion pounds. My position was if we as an industry paid for the study, then we should all be able to see it, not just 10 guys on the board, right? And uh, actually I got a lot of support <laughs> with that. And the next thing I somehow became chairman of the board. 
I got elected. I got elected. And then all the older guys on the board that had been fighting with one another decided, hey, well, we don't know this guy well enough. Let's make him chairman. You know, something, you know. That's how, so, it, how it often works. They can't agree amongst themselves. So they yeah, they go for a third party. Well, the other thing I want to make sure before we jump into innovation and adoption, I think it's a fair to accuse you of being a water expert, certainly water concern. And I think our listeners would appreciate hearing your take on the water situation, maybe in your neck of the woods and then in California in general. You know, water in California is not a one size fits all discussion. The desert's different than the Central Valley, and it's different than the Central Coast. But can you talk a little bit about water in your area and then just your, your general comments that, you know, we, you know, we're all delighted that it's raining, but, you know, apparently, apparently we need a couple seasons of this before, you know, we get to declare victory and go home. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, our operation started in Western Fresno County in Westlands. And Westlands is a federal contractor, a big water district, largest in the U.S., but we're water contractors. So we have junior rights to, you know, those that had like pre-1914 water rights when the state in 1914 decided, wait, we just can't let everybody continue to take water. And what we're going to do is grandfather everybody in who's here, who has developed a beneficial use of the water. And then you had appropriative rights, you know, guys off the river that were taking water. And so they're next in line. And then the contractors, like we are, we're at the very bottom. So you have to admire the state of California and the feds for building these projects that allowed the state to flourish. Regrettably, as you well know, we haven't been reinvesting in these projects and this infrastructure. And now as the population has grown and as we have greater environmental awareness and needs, the junior rights holders basically have lost, you know, kind of their their water supply, if you will. And as a result, we all started pumping more, right? I mean, you know, so now the state has come along and they're going to restrict our ability to pump. So tragically, I think we're going to end up with less agriculture in the state from a water perspective. It'll be interesting to see if the monies that, you know, we always float with these bonds to for water, if one day we actually spend that money to do something beneficial for the state at large. Because year to date, we've raised money. We've done a lot of studies and tests, but really haven't done anything to address our fundamental needs here. And, you know, time will tell. I do believe the state ultimately reacts when there's a crisis. So the good news is we're getting closer to crisis. Well, as as I understand it, seven projects have been improved and, uh, you know, one's got some uh, process hangups, but the other six theoretically are good to go. But to your point, you know, I don't think anyone's turned any dirt in the ground yet. That was precisely my question. Are Do you have insights on, like, what is the holdup at this point? The dollars are there. Well, you know, I think there's still competing interests in the states for those dollars. And now any project that goes in, you know, you certainly have to set aside some of the yield on the project to go for the environment, some of the yield to go to, you know, pick something. So, and then what happens when you look at the total project and its scope, you realize in order to get it done, you got to give away some large percentage of the possible yield coming off of there. And you end up with something that really some people may say, well, from a cost standpoint, it's just not that viable anymore. You know, and keep in mind, we would be far better off if we did nothing more than utilize, fully utilize the investments that we currently have in place that our forefathers built, you know, with tremendous insight. You know, we don't fully utilize the Central Valley Project or the state project you know, for their original purposes. We're now have included other interests and we've divvied up water differently. 
And so anyway, the whole thing is, I think it's something that can be fixed with some prudent investments. One thing about the state of California, certainly now, I mean, we've gone through drought over the last three years. But if you look at the history of the state of California, it's always gone through periods of drought and wet weather. You know, thank goodness we're not just like in Nevada or we're not, you know, I mean, we actually have the Sierra Nevadas and the coastal range. We tend to get storms coming off the Pacific. It's just, are we prepared to utilize it and optimize it when it comes? And we're not. Are there certain crops that are most at risk? Is it crops specifically? Is it regions of California specifically? Who is most impacted by the severe droughts? Great question. And, you know, as you move around the state and depending on water rights and depending on soil and climate and, you know, the hydrology under the ground, you know, it's a real patchwork. It's a great question. So many of my friends just assume, oh, the Central Valley is just one big blob of ground with the same amount of water resources spread evenly. And, you know, you guys will figure it out. Well, it varies from where you are. So like in our area, the crops that are having the greatest impact are the more water intensive crops like almonds. You know, an almond's a tree. It consumes water. And things about almonds, one thing about almonds, they're really sensitive to salts. And a lot of the groundwater out on the west side has more salt to it. So I would say in our area, we're pulling out more almonds. And yet, you know, while I'm describing this, we're looking to develop some acreage around Turlock. And we've just this past year during the drought, we were looking at this property that has been farmed with no drip, nothing, because they have secure water up there and the water is very inexpensive and they get an annual allocation of like four acre feet. And we're comparing that to the west side where we're getting almost no water. It's super expensive. And, you know, but you still have this patchwork. But I had thought all along that the permanent crops would likely make it through the drought better than the row crops because Typically, you know, an almond orchard, let's say, is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, 30,000 an acre, pistachios, 40 or 50,000. But when you start looking at these crops on what they return annually, it can paint a different picture. So we're making a lot more money growing tomatoes and some other row crops, even cotton right now, than we are trying to grow almonds in our region. So I'm going to pull out right now this year, we're going to pull out about a thousand acres of almonds, turn around, plant maybe 1200 acres of additional row crops. And we go from a loss to a positive, and it's a multi-million dollar swing. Beautiful. Then you can buy that land in Turlock, put some more, whatever you want in. Yeah. No, that's what- Expand. (laughs) That's that's been part of our program was actually to stop growing as many almonds on the West side and start forever in a day, we were trying to buy land and transfer water to our home ranch. And then I realized, no, this is a mistake. We should be going to where the water is and develop properties there because the state doesn't have the distribution. They haven't invested in enough to get water from A to B. So that's been part of our program. Talk a little bit uh, besides uh, your strategic thinking. One of the things I was intrigued by in an earlier conversation is the fact, you know, you've talked about environmental concerns and and you're now officially a beneficial corporation. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, because it seems to me that, you know, I mean, a lot of things go into the stew of California agriculture and obviously environment, sustainability, social currency. And you seem to have embraced all that. I know sometimes your peers occasionally, you know, jump up and right. down a little bit, <laughs> jump up and down a little bit. But you, you've kind of said it. You know, I'm going to be pretty pragmatic about this. And then also, and, you know, and frankly, knowing you a little bit, I think that's the type of person you are. So talk about a beneficial corporation and how you like to do business. Because I know when I've looked at your website, I mean, even I sense, you know, whether it's your dad's hand and just the kind of folks 
you are and how you do business. And I'm guessing yeah. this is a little bit of a reflection of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this is actually, I'll tell you. So we, we had a couple of customers that were, you know, more and more customers are wanting to have an impact in their supply chain, you know? So we got all these guys that show up that have never farmed that tell us how we should farm, what the right way is. Always interested in that. Anyway, <laughs> um, you know, so, but where we are, given our water situation and what have you, we've always been managing our inputs really, you know, and it's been driven mostly by water, but the constraints on water forced us to put in all kinds of drip and micro sprinklers. So we we're putting all of our materials, you know, through the drip and, you know, everything. And then I'd have a buyer come along and talk about, we just want to know that you're managing this and you're keeping track of it and you set goals and you have targets for things like, you know, water use, the materials you're using, you know, all these things that, quite frankly, we were already doing in large part. You know, then there were things like, well, are you doing anything that's good for the bees? You know, are you, and so, what? okay, so we went out and planted hedgerows and wildflowers and all this kind of stuff to create habitat for the bees. And then the thought occurred to me, like, I wonder if we're already doing everything that a beneficial corp needs to do to be certified. So we got, you know, a form and there's like, I don't know, 90,000 questions on it. We we filled it out and uh, lo and behold, you know, we passed. And uh, we have a very large customer that we have a great relationship with that is a beneficial corp. And so we just thought we'd love telling them, oh yeah, no, we're a B corp, but you know, and we've, we actually have a higher score than you do. And, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then once you are, it's so much easier to talk to the next consumer product group that's interested in your farming practices. And I thought, you know, this is actually aligns with what we're already doing. And a big part of being a beneficial corp or embracing regenerative ag or anything, so much of that is about kind of soil health and are you improving soils? You know, I can't think of anything that I would rather do than to pass the land that I inherited from my parents. And my parents used a lot of conventional materials and farmed progressively in their day with drip and hybrid seed and everything. I think if I could pass the same land onto the next generation with healthier soils, I mean, what a cool thing that would be. Yes. And so, you know, I've spoke to my farm management team and everything like, come on, we're already doing a lot of this. Let's take it up a notch. Let's report our findings to our boards. We'll establish metrics, you know, on soil health and these other things. You know, this is part of a journey, but we're embracing it. We're going down that path. I'm curious, Stuart, explain some of the practices. Well, we're not really doing anything. No. Okay. Some <laughs> of the practices. <laughs> some of the practices. So we've incorporated, I know farmers typically, especially if you're in a dry area, you know, like if you tell them, oh no, you should be planting more cover crops. You know, it's like, don't they require water? I mean, are, really? So but we started going down this path of planting more cover crops and we had some real positive uh, results in the soil taking more water. We believe our soils are benefiting from that. This year during the drought, this is great. We went out and we planted about, oh God, we probably have about 7,000 acres of cover crop on the ranch right now. And it's raining and we don't have to do anything. And the stuff looks great. And we're going to end up disking a lot of it in into the soil, but we're going to be bailing it and selling it to a lot of the dairy guys and what have you. We're actually going to make some pretty good money on it. And oh. if I told you, whoa, well, we're just going to get embraced dry farming. You know, I think I'd be run out of town, but it's about positioning yourselves, you know, opportunistically, like if it does rain, that you enjoy the benefits of this stuff. 
So more specifically, we started embracing and taking on using more biologicals and trying to reduce our conventional materials. We're looking to incorporate more compost and biomass into the ground and track it. The tracking part is the real tough part. You know, like what are the right metrics to be, you know? We've done a lot with, for our pollinators, planting hedgerows and all this kind of stuff, creating environments for them. Anyway, things like that. I'm curious. I always get such mixed feedback on the topic of biologicals, but I also know that it is a rising priority in the state and amongst some more progressive growers. What has been your experience in their performance and, you know, how sold are you? Have you drank the Kool-Aid? Well, that's a great question. Let me back up and tell you, I have an incentive program for all my employees that's tied to yield increases and cost savings. So when I go to my farm team and I said, hey, you know what? I want you guys to start using more biologicals. You know, they were like, really? So (laughs) they're less less efficacious. They cost more. And it's going to negatively impact, you know, our bonus pool, you know. And so I had convinced them, look, and this is part of a culture, I think, that you try to develop where people will try new things. Like, look, you guys, I want you to try it. You know, I'm not telling you you have to do it. I want you to try it. And it's not going to count against you in any way, shape or form, you know, relative to the incentive programs and everything. So we've had mixed results. You know, it's funny, the guys that sell a lot of these materials hype it up a lot more than as being more efficacious than what we've found. And, you know, if you're really going to use these materials, you've got to get your timing right. You may have to use them more often. You know, it's a much more intensive method of farming. But, you know, I just figured we got to dabble in it a little bit. I think those products are getting better over the course of time. A lot of the seed stimulants and that kind of thing, you know, I think they're having better results. We're not there yet, I don't think, but we're moving in the right direction. And if I understand them correctly too, this is kind of a, this is a new area for myself, but also it's hard to measure on any given season. And there's making the correlations immediately back to yield that you see on any given year, any given season. It is about growing the soil over time and kind of monitoring over the years, right? Right. Yes. So it, it's hard. It's kind of like you're investing in the future and you have to kind of be patient with the ROI, I believe, on any sort of season annual basis. But hopefully in five years, you're reaping the benefit of, of some of that investment. You know what? You're absolutely correct in that regard. But I can also tell you that we've been picking up premiums from some of our buyers for our farming practices that are helping offset some of those costs. Okay. Simply because of the use. Well, I think for those buyers that are serious about this and are really interested, they understand just what you said. This is a long-term effort and there's going to be costs on the front end. And so we've appealed to them. And actually, I think we should do this as an industry more broadly to say, look, think of all these companies that tout their environmental credentials and their supply chain and, you know, all the great things that they're doing for the environment and climate and everything, but they don't manage any of the farms directly. And so, you know, I've kind of taken the position with some of these guys, if you're really serious about that and you're going to walk the walk, you know, and all this, walk your talk and all that, you need to step up and encourage growers and help them transition, right? Which means you actually need to pay them a premium, you know, if you're truly serious about this. And if you're not standing behind it, you're not really serious. Yep. Got to have some skin in the game. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. 
Yep. There you go. Speaking of the game, so you've been the master of ceremonies for Ag Sharks for a number of years now, and let's broaden it to talk a little bit about Ag Tech in general. What's impressed you over the years, just in terms of whether it's categories or meeting needs you have for your own operation? What stands out on you as you kind of think back over the last several years around Ag Tech? You know, because it's a category that's maybe maturing, consolidating before the next great leap forward. Um, what are your general thoughts on on the whole ag tech scene? Well, first of all, ag sharks, all the smart guys won't won't do whatever I end up doing all the time, right? Uh, so just no, a, a couple of things, just the way I think about ag technology. First of all, you know, we take it almost for granted that the greatest ag technology really has already happened, right? It's drip irrigation, it's better variety. You know, I found my dad's old budget from 1974, where he was budgeting 22 ton to the acre for processing tomatoes on the same land that we now budget 58 to 60. And I asked him, 22 tons? Like, where did that come from? You know, and he says, well, I needed the financing at the bank. So I bumped it. I thought I was going to be doing like 19 to 20. Well, there you go. (laughs) Anyway, but the point is, we've made tremendous strides, you know, just farming with drip and better varieties and, you know, that. So today, when I ask my team members, you know, when you think about the ranch and we want to move the needle, what technology should we really be looking at? And I go to the guys in the trenches. I want their input. You would think where we are, given our water issues, that it would be all these different water sensors and blah, blah, blah. Not so much. You know, we can track what a plant needs. And we are currently with our drip systems and all of the stuff that we apply to that sensors and everything, you know, we're already operating at a really extremely efficient level of water use efficiency on the farm. So my guys have told me, well, you know, actually we collect a lot of data, but we don't have a lot of information. I mean, we have tons of data. We need systems in place that can actually take data from soils and plant and, you know, weather stations and all this kind of stuff and do a better job of making that information that we can actually use in the field to make better decisions, real-time decisions, right? And it seems like, well, this is what everybody promises, but until a lot of all of this technology and stuff interfaces well together, you know, you end up with little pockets of information that aren't basically coming together to really, yeah. So, you know, better data and information systems. I mentioned kind of biologicals and, you know, honestly, more mechanization on the farm with the increased labor costs and the unreliability of labor itself you know, mechanical thinners and weeders and all that kind of stuff. A lot of our harvesting is already mechanized, but, you know, there are a lot of crops, especially with our group at Western Growers, the fresh produce. I think we can really move the needle with mechanization. Question for you, and I'm curious your response to this, because I think this whole issue of digitization on the farm is really going to be part of this whole next generation of progress. But I'm always a little, and I freely admit, I was more of a sales and marketing guy, and I always very lamely joke. My brother-in-law, the grower, you know, a salesman married to a farmer's daughter said, hey, you go sell, you know, growing is skilled labor. But, you know, so... so, so <laughs> the I, same I, thing. <laughs> but, you know, so, no, I think farmers are very, very sharp. And I've encountered, a, you know, a number of really intelligent folks. And they talk about getting all this information, but not necessarily knowing what to do with it. But, you know, I look at somebody like yourself and what you just said, I mean, is it more information at least at a minimum helpful or does it really need to get to specifically prescriptive and, you know, diagnostic? What does that mean exactly for the layperson that needs to understand that? Because as a rule, I think I would think you're pretty sharp. And if you get a lot of information in your hands, you're going to know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, I'm not that sharp. 
<laughs> we will not tell anyone. <laughs> Two. Uh, no, seriously, it really is. You know, we have systems that are providing us with so much stuff. It would just be better if it was more fully integrated, you know, that helped us like, well, this information is telling you this, but the other thing, things telling you do something else and figure out, well, how do you optimize this decision-making process and what have you? You know, there's one thing I did leave out that I'm hoping for, and that's just being able to figure out how much like carbon we're really sequestering and how to measure soil health better and more accurately. So you really can, you know, if you can measure it, you can manage it. And right now, you know, it's funny, you know, you go back to Washington, you listen to the secretary of ag talk about the farm bill and how important climate is. And I sit there and I think, well, of course it's important. It'd be great if we could measure what you're talking about. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of basic to me, but, uh, you know, ask him a question like that and you're, you're going to have your head shoot off. So anyway, so that's why we have a Washington officer. They can, they can ask the question. (laughs) Since we now we have fights on the congressional floor and stuff. So I don't know, maybe that's becoming the new norm. That'll be the farm bill uh, effort. (laughs) (laughs) I think Washington is a place where leadership goes to die. I'm just going to say it. Okay. There you go. There you go, go, Candice. You got some controversy. (laughs) Thank you. I, Stuart, I always try to stir the pot a little bit and frowned upon. (laughs) I I don't frown upon it. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I should say, unless you're part of the Western Grower staff, then. Exactly. That is great. That's right. That's right. Can I I ask? I know it's almost time, Dennis, to wrap up, but I am also, I'm curious about sea and spray technologies in specialty crops. Like where, where is that on anybody's radar? And I'm, I'm just thinking about that, obviously, in regards to building soil health, precision, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you know, that technology is improving, you know, it's been around for a while and all that kind of stuff. And God, year, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I remember going to the Tulare Farm Show and watching these spray rigs that, you know, would look at the tree and, you know, and then turn off. And and so we don't run our own spray equipment, but, you know, certainly the people that we use when we do spray, having that technology and everything that ultimately, hopefully we share in some of the benefits and the savings while we're paying them more, hopefully some of that benefit accrues to us as well. Otherwise, we will get in the spraying business. But no, I, I think there's great use for that. You know, I think we're only heading that direction. And anything that allows us to get by with using fewer materials. Okay. I haven't we'll seen the latest. And I hear FBN is actually, you know, we spend a lot of time with, with GreenEye. And I'm just curious of like where the technology is today in development for specialty crops and, you know, what kind of exposure you're getting to those. But you know, to answer that more specifically, I'd need one of my crop managers, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. so, uh, but I thought you guys were going to ask me, what do you think California looks like 10, 20 years down? Well, you know, that was going to be our last question, but uh, you, since you anticipated it, why don't we uh, close our conversation with exactly that question? What is your outlook on the future? I mean, you're a longstanding company in the Valley and you've obviously, you're involved in some of the major crops and have been very nimble about water and how to deal with it. What's your outlook? Well, my outlook, I, I think there's clearly uh, due to water constraints and I'll just say, you know, lack of investment in these projects and, and distribution and all the above. I mean, we don't, in the state, we don't even have a plan right now to recharge groundwater when these flood flows like we have right now. Ask the state, how much water are you diverting to recharge? You'll hear crickets. I mean, that is shameful. Okay. Anyway. I'm getting off track. So I think ultimately we're going to see, we hear that there's 
you know, 700 to a million acres will come out of production due to pumping restrictions and under Sigma and all that in the state. So we're going to have fewer farmed acres, you know, and we're in an area where we have the most productive and diverse farmland in the world. And we're going to shrink it, which is a tragedy. But so I think we're going to see further consolidation for all the people that want to help the small farmer, you know, just cut back their water and increase their labor rates if you want them to go away which effectively we're doing. It's a terrible policy, but that's where we are. So I think we're going to see even more pressure on the smaller guys. I think we're going to see consolidation, regrettably. I think a lot of that consolidation will be with investment capital. It's not the small family farmer. It's not the family farmer that is going to be, you know, they'll still have successful family farming operations that are probably integrated and have thought strategically. But I think we're going to see more and more investment capital coming in And so all these farmers that would, you know, live in these communities and give back to the community, I think that's going to change, you know, and we're really losing a great part of California. One thing I had always assumed that we would see probably a preponderance of permanent crops going in, but permanent crops are hard demand, right, on water. So I think it's going to be a combination and a mix of row crop and permanent crop through the state. And, you know, I think there's going to be some real winners and losers. And I encourage all my farming friends to think about it long-term, what it looks like, and to do a little strategic planning. So many of us don't do it. It's the most fun thing about any business. And I think we should all be doing a lot more of it. So yeah, just some pretty, uh, pretty interesting words to end on. You know, I, I think between, uh, you know, thinking about the future, uh, getting a little controversy, drawing some lines in the sand, obviously a lot, a lot to think about. So we may be bordering on getting some controversy. You know what? Well, We checked all the boxes for a great episode start. (laughs) It's also about, I think in the future, it'll be a little bit more about adaptation and figuring out what you have and don't have. And uh, so one of the things I'm doing that I'm super jazzed about is planting agave because I love drinking distilled spirits. (laughs) Right. When this is done, I'm going to go get some immediately and uh, watch a football game later. Well, uh, well, there you go. No, and I'll be joining you in that. So let me close with this final question, though. Somehow I sense in the midst of all of this, you're an optimist. Uh, uh, yes or no? you got to be. You know, I am absolutely enthralled with the idea that this is a difficult puzzle, but it's a puzzle. And we're going to figure out what's in the best interest, you know, of our operation. And we're going to morph and change and adapt because we want to be one of those survivors. I always tell my board, it's like we're in a lifeboat and we want to have the attributes of the one that survives in the lifeboat. And usually my board will tell me, you know, the guy that dies last in the lifeboat has the worst death. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, I'm going to be excited to be the last guy. <laughs> That's right. Well, nothing else. You can uh, calm your nerves with a little tequila. So uh, your story, board we... shares your humor. I'm also learning. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still appear to have the majority of the board support. So we'll guess that they do. Stuart, we, we appreciate your time. This is uh been a uh, terrific visit. We've, we've enjoyed it. And we think the folks who listen to the Voices of the Valley will as well. And uh, we hope that includes you in a few weeks. We'll let you know when. And Candace, he was pretty good, wasn't he? It was great. Really, one of my favorite episodes. Thank you so much for being with us, Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. And Candace, uh, go ahead, Stuart. I'm sorry. You're very generous. And it was just nice to be with you too. Thank you. Terrific. Well, we enjoyed our visit and uh, we'll see you soon, I'm sure. And uh, Candace, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College, 
To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources Program and the courses offered in Ag Technology, Food Safety, and Plant Science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.